Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Today on the pod, we bring you the latest as Mounties pay tribute to one of their own with a procession and service on Honoring RCMP Constable Shailen Yang. Plus, the final cruise ship of the season departs Vancouver today. We look at the health of the industry post-pandemic as it deals with increased competition from across the border. And Canada expects to welcome 500,000 new immigrants per year by 2025. We continue to look at settlement and housing challenges newcomers face. That's all next on the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Thousands of officers dressed in red surge marched in unison in procession led by an RCMP pipe band, a hearse and a riderless horse in the funeral for fallen RCMP constable Shailen Yang. Now the procession in Richmond began underneath a large Canadian flag hung between two extended ladders from firefighting uh, trucks as civilians and firefighters in uniform poppies pinned to their lapels lined the streets uh, to watch the march. Uh, Constable Yang was 31 years old and she was a mental health and homeless outreach officer. Uh, she was stabbed to death two weeks ago while she and a City of Burnaby employee attempted to issue an election notice a man who had been living in a tent uh, at a local park. Uh, Miss Yang, who lived in Richmond, is being honoured by a regimental or military-style funeral in accordance with RCMP protocol uh, for any officer who dies in the line of duty. Uh, the RCMP said as many as 2,000 officers from BC and across Canada joined in the procession uh, by members of the Canadian Border Services Agency, the Armed Forces, Sheriffs, Firefighters, and BC Ambulance Service, while another 1,500 members were also uh, able to attend. It was truly a moving day. Here are some moments from today's service. Constable Shailen Yang. Shay was principled, principled in a way that helped people around her be better, do better, be more compassionate, be less judgmental. Shay had the unusual quality of making every room that she was in a better place, and yet was often the quietest one in that room. She listened a lot. She thought deeply, and when she spoke, people listened. Shay was kind, observant, warm, strong, gentle. Shay was never one to draw attention to herself, but she was the kind of person you wanted to know more about. Shay preferred the rain. She was cool beyond measure, a basketball player, a martial arts artist, a medal winner in jiu-jitsu. She was humble. She empowered others. Black was Shay's favorite color. At her wedding, she wore white trainers, with little red hearts and a red tuxedo. At her graduation in Red Surge, she shone. She was driven to succeed. She knew what she wanted and went for it. Her dream was to join the RCMP. She believed in helping people. Shailen Yang was always a hero. 
Her whole life was dedicated to helping others, from the community she served, to those in need, to her cousin going through a tough first year of university. All of us, all her family and friends who've loved her and have been so proud of her, we've always known this. Now, all of Canada and Taiwan and the whole world can join us in knowing this too. I also want you to know that Shay was more than a hero. She was human, deeply, deeply human. Everything she did was defined by her empathy, her compassion, and her belief that she could change the world. She helped everyone she could because she had faith in them. She had faith that we, each and every one of us, could make this world a better place. And she kept this faith in spite of all the struggles in her life. She faced so much adversity, the sort of adversity that can really change a person. But in all the time I knew her, she only ever grew warmer and kinder than before. Shay faced everything in life with a laugh and a smile and an open heart. And the world was all the brighter for it. For the past three years, I've had the honor of working with Constable Shaylin Yang. If you had told me two weeks ago that I would be up here today speaking on behalf of Shaylin, I would have broken down into tears as so many of us did on our October 18th, 2022, the single worst day of my life. I remember as the news started to break out that I phoned my father and simply told him, it's not me. Although he could hear the sorrow in my voice as if it was. For Shaylin, she would not be able to do this for her family or for her wife. And I so dearly wish each day that this was different. Shaylin required hardly any training at all. She came to us already with the skills needed to excel. She was kind, caring, compassionate, and driven in her duty. She believed in helping others and showed this remarkably while working as a member of the Burnaby Mental Health Unit and as a member of the Proactive Support Response Unit. For Shaylin, helping others was a passion she so fiercely pursued. For members of the Burnaby Detachment and those gathered around us, we remain heartbroken. My friend shines so brightly and truly had an impact on everyone around her. The world has seen a mere glimpse of the person who appreciated life to its fullest and who I and my friends were privileged to see on a daily basis. I had been asked here to speak on behalf of my work colleagues, so to them I will say this, know that you are not alone. For every call that you will attend, for every decision you will have to make, for every laugh that you will share, and for every tear that is shed, you are not alone. Shaylin is with us in our hearts, and she will forever remain in our hearts. I love you forever, my friend. Thank you for making us all a family and uniting us in our hearts.
Those are some of the comments today uh, for the service of Constable Shailen Yang, who gave up her life doing what she loved doing, uh, working as a mental health and homeless outreach officer with the Burnaby RCMP. As I said, the RCMP said as many as 2,000 officers, officers from BC and across Canada uh, joined in the procession today. They're also joined by members of the Canadian Border Services Agency, the Armed Forces, Sheriffs, Firefighters, and of course the BC Ambulance Service. Another 1,500 members were also able to attend uh, as well. Uh, it was a strong show, uh, show of support uh, for uh, fellow British Columbian and Canadian who gave up her life uh, doing what she loved doing, as I said, working as a homeless uh, outreach officer. Um, and please give us a call on our buzz lines. I know it's been a very moving day for so many people, uh, those obviously who knew her and worked with her, but those who didn't. Um, this is somebody who dedicated her life to service. In a few days, Vancouver's new city council will be sworn in. There'll be many issues before council. Uh, there's lots of stuff that was debated during uh, the election issue. This next issue wasn't, to my understanding, but it's an important one. to do with the Georgia and Dunsmere viaducts? The plan has always been to knock them down, but they still stand. Their destruction was uh, supposedly uh, supposed to trigger the creation of a, a new street network uh, uh, and uh, along the long-promised extension of Creekside Park. Now, the estimated cost at the time to topple the concrete uh, Giants was about 90 to 127 million. Uh, longtime City Hall watchers recall that it was the Gregor Robertson led council who voted 5 to 4 in October of 2015 to demolish the elevated roadways. They said it would serve as a link from Chinatown and South Strathcona to downtown, like it did in the 1970s. So, why are the Georgia and Dunsmere Viaducts still standing? Joining me now to talk about this issue is Sarah Kirby Young, a Vancouver City Councillor and re elected councillor as well. Sarah, thank you for joining us. Good afternoon, Jess. How are you? I'm doing very well. We can discuss policy for once and not uh, worry about the last six weeks of election campaigns. Uh, let's let's you talk. Sa- you, sound, you sound like you're pretty happy about that. Yeah, well, you know, you can be a bit more substantive now and uh, we don't have to worry about uh, election election cycles. So let's touch about touch on Georgia and Dunsmere Videx. Look, so October 2015, uh, the then council voted five to four to demolish the elevated roadways. Why are they still standing? Well, at that time, which is, you know, think about it almost eight years ago now, and a lot has happened, it was predicated entirely on being funded 100% through um, the generation of CACs or community amenity contributions that are paid by developers in exchange for density bonusing. Um, and and uh, since then, that development hasn't moved forward. There is no funding set aside from the city. And so here we are now, um, almost eight years later, uh, we've had a pandemic. Construction costs are escalating. Um, and also, um, I think after such a significant sort of seismic shift in the city, we've seen housing become increasingly unaffordable. So that uh, funding mechanism assumes that you are building predominantly strata housing. And we know we have significant needs now in the city um, for people to have um, affordability across the spectrum of choices, whether it's rental housing or social housing. So um, I think really um, it's a reexamination of how best do you achieve this vision um, of developing a more livable neighborhood, which I think is a good one. Um, I just think we need to fundamentally identify the fact that there's no funding at this point. So the community benefit, community amenity uh, agreements, those agreements, uh, there wouldn't be enough money generated now whatsoever if you were to go ahead with it? Well, a lot of that development didn't uh, transpire. I think that uh, there was sort of an optimistic perspective that within two or three years, you would start to see those viaducts coming down. Um, but we haven't seen any of those large developments move forward for a number of reasons, whether it's on the Plaza Nation site, the Concord lands, um, et cetera. We're starting to see a couple of those projects coming forward now. 
um, that are in the pipeline, uh, you know, applying for rezonings uh, will be coming before council. Um, but a lot of that development was stalled. Um, so, you know, as I said, uh, the funding wasn't coming forward. So until some of those projects start to council and there's a reassessment at this point in time as to whether or not developers are changing the mix um, with current construction costs, um, as well as other considerations, what could actually reasonably be generated. And I think you mentioned off the top that that estimate to take the viaducts down of 90 to $127 million mm -hmm. uh, was eight years old. And we've seen how much construction costs have escalated um, only recently in the last couple of years. So um, as I said, I think it requires a reexamination because economically, um, as well as what we're trying to achieve in the city from a livability perspective, um, a lot of factors have changed. And, and in, in regards to just, there's soil issues as well. Even if you were to take the, the viaducts down, there's some soil issues there as well, right? And that's going to cost money as well? Yeah, there's potentially uh, soil remediation. Uh, so there's a number of significant pieces there that would need to be considered. So right now, in regards to your priorities as a council, and I, I don't uh, ask that you speak for all of ABC, but in regards to priorities before you, uh, public safety, uh, housing, uh, many other issues that are before council, uh, where does this sit in regards to priority? Well, I think certainly this falls under the potential of delivering new housing. Um, I think, as I said, the question is what kind of housing, um, because what we need are those more affordable. We're desperately in need of rental um, across the spectrum and with such a low vacancy rate of less than 1%. So the social housing, um, I think by anybody's standards, this is a longer term solution, uh, because even if you had funding today, you'd be looking at uh, several years of the time you did demolition. And, you know, you're talking about redevelopment of the neighborhood, establishment of a wharf, um, a new road network, et cetera. So... Um, we need to make traction on housing um, much more quickly in the term, and that's going to happen through um, smart policies to incent rental. That's going to happen through use of city land that is currently available now. So um, I think this plays into the housing bucket, uh, which is certainly something we heard as a priority during the campaign, uh, but it's not going to be one of the shorter-term pieces for sure. All right, Sarah, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate it. No worries. Always good to chat with you. New findings from the Angus Reid Institute show that half of Metro Vancouver's residents are open to combining some or all the region's 21 municipalities. An online survey conducted last month found that 42% support partial amalgamation and 8% support merging all municipal governments in Metro Vancouver. Joining me to talk about amalgamation in Metro Vancouver is Shachi Crow, president of the Angus Reid Institute. Hello, Shachi. Hi, Jazz. Well, it's a very interesting conversation and one that has been going on um, for a very, very, very and long time. And on and on and on and on. But, you know, I'm one of those people very interested in this subject because uh, while it may not be one municipality, the idea of, of at least having less than 21 managing this region, I, I, I think, would be efficient. Uh, so let's talk overall about uh, people's perceptions and views of amalgamation. Um, where were the numbers the highest? Uh, it's really very much a, a tale of, of some amount of regional appetite for it, right? So, mm -hmm. as you mentioned, Jazz, there's there's not much interest in seeing all 21 of those municipalities merged into one, which is something that we saw, uh, because Metro Vancouver regionally uh, is, is something of an outlier. We've seen Greater Toronto do this. It went from being North York and, and, and Tobacoke and, and this and that into becoming one big city of Toronto. Ottawa went through it. Uh, we've seen Halifax go through it, as well as other major centres. And the results have frankly been mixed. Some people have thought, yeah, this is this has overall been a success, and others really, you know, believe it was a failure and not the right thing to do. Um, in Metro Vancouver, only about eight percent 
uh, regionally. So this is across all 21 of those local governments and mm-hmm. municipalities. Say they like, uh, you know, whatever this, this region is called to, to be one uh, big local government, one major city. Uh, but you do see... Uh, I could not in insignificant amount of appetite for it, depending on what part of the region you're in. So as an example, nearly half of people on the North Shore, so that's both North Vancouver's city and district, plus West Vancouver, plus Lions Bay, folks there are uh, are interested in maybe seeing some merging on that front. We also see about 44% saying the same uh, for, among those who are living in the Tri-Cities. So the Coquitlam, Port Coquitlam, Port Moody, that, that these three cities, uh, people who are living in those cities. So we're not talking about folks in Richmond, you know, talking uh, academically about a merger of a place they don't live in. Mm-hmm. People who live in those municipalities, you do see a, a, a not in significant amount of appetite for some amount of merging. So in many ways, what you're describing to me is sort of um, very focused geographically, the, the Port Moody's, the Port Coquitlam's and the Coquitlam's or the North Shore. Um, one could argue, what about Vancouver and Burnaby? Uh, geographically, they work. Is there much appetite there? No, very little <laughs> appetite. And, you know, the Vancouver's, the city of Vancouver proper, if you will, and Vancouver rights who live within those city boundaries, but also the Burnaby's, the Richmond's, uh, some some of the larger suburbs that, you know, we used to call jazz. You and I have, have lived in this in this region for so long. They're so old. Remember, we used to call them like the bedroom communities. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Not so much anymore. They are now sort of fair, fairly established cities and, and, and municipalities unto themselves. And so there isn't a lot of interest. And I think also we didn't delve too deeply into the why or the why not, but you can extrapolate. If you're Burnaby and you're looking at, for example, policing costs associated with policing in, in the city of Vancouver or other costs that are naturally higher because of the, the commercial costs, the density, um, you know, just, just the infrastructure costs, if you're Burnaby, you pay and, and you pay and you pay your your income taxes in Burnaby. You say, well, do I really want to take on those additional costs? Mm-hmm. Probably not. Yeah. Um, if you're if you are in a tiny municipality uh, where there may be a perception that services could be improved through merging, you may be a little bit more open to that. Yeah, you know, when you think, I remember talking to a, a very high profile. I won't mention their name. Very high profile a municipal politician about ten years ago about a regional police force, uh, and this individual said to me, "Not a chance." And they said, the "Problem right. is, uh, all those resources are going to Vancouver, and my relatively large municipality is going to be left going to be left uh, with less resources, not more, by amalgamating." So those are the kind of things that don't get stated sometimes. But I think that they are legitimate legitimate issues. I'm just curious, though, uh, do you think that even though we are heading towards probably a conversation about amalgamation one day, I don't know when that'll be, of course, but uh, part of this also has to do with the fact that there is some perception that we don't think regionally, we don't think get things done. And I just use the Massey Tunnel as an example. We've gone from a 10-lane bridge, now we're going down to an 8-lane bridge. The mayors say we don't like it. The municipality says, wait a minute, or the province says, wait a minute, this is a, a, a pro- this this bridge will move people, but goods and services. we got to think bigger beyond just one municipality or two, but for the whole region and province. I mean, part of, how much do you think that this conversation, if at all, is just based on the public's perception that things don't get done in this region as quickly as they once did? Well, there's data behind that. So when you ask people in this region, as we did, mm-hmm. what are the issues that are the top issues for you? What are the issues that are most important to you? Well, you know, 
don't don't be prepared to fall off your chair, Jazz, because they're the same issues we've been talking about for years now. Housing, cost of living, homelessness, the opioid crisis, transportation and transit. Each one of those issues also gets more or less a failing grade uh, at, at the municipal level from uh, from people who live in those municipalities. How do you think your municipality is doing on these issues? Not so good. So what we can what we can conclude from that is these are issues that are not easily solved, or frankly, you know, not solvable at all. Uh, what the minute you you cross the Oak Street Bridge from Richmond into Vancouver, or the minute you go through the tunnel from 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 Delta into Richmond, it's not as though. Any one of these local governments has has found the magic formula to solve a lot of these issues that are now regionally based and regionally spread. The opioid crisis is not, the mental health crisis is not a Vancouver problem Mm -hmm. or a Surrey problem. It is a regional problem. And so if there is an appetite for this, um, it's, it's not around perceived cost savings. It's not even, I think, around uh, the, 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 the belief that maybe policing would be better, or firefighting resources would be better, or those types of things. It really is now that the issues most important to people in this region um, are seen as not being dealt with and not being dealt with at all, and certainly not being dealt with effectively at the municipal level, because how can a single municipality in a sea of 21 uh, have have the tools to suddenly fix it within their boundary or their borders. And if they had figured that out, don't you think everyone else would have adopted them by now? That is true. That is true. I, I, I've, I'm still uh, am intrigued by that four to six municipalities running the region instead of the 21. I hope we get to that there one day. That's a survey of one talk show host uh, who's hosting. Right <laughs> Highly unscientific. <laughs> Highly, yes. We call that a focus group. <laughs> That's right. But I really appreciate your time today and uh, fascinating findings as well. Thank Thank you so much, Shachi. Thanks for having me. Well, the federal government yesterday unveiled plans for a massive increase in the number of immigrants entering Canada with a goal of seeing 500,000 people arrive each year by 2025 as it seeks to redress a critical labor shortage across the country. I want to put that in context for you. As I've said earlier, back in the early 90s when I was a producer just out of journalism school, we were debating 225,000 people uh, coming into Canada. In the early uh, 1980s, we used to have about 95,000 people coming into this country. So a significant increase uh, and it speaks to the needs uh, for people uh, across this country. Uh, the, The announcement yesterday puts a heavy emphasis on admitting more permanent residents with needed work skills and experience alongside a more modest targets for family members uh, and refugees. Now, this comes just as last month, British Columbia issued invitations to apply to candidates through their provincial nomination program. Now, the PNP program was launched in 1998, now accounts for over 80,000 permanent residents admissions per year across the country. Now, whenever you invite so many people to come to your region, there are obviously concerns over settlement and assimilation and housing, of course. Yesterday, we spoke to Chris Friesen, who's the Chief Operating Officer for the Immigrant Services Society of BC. We talked a little bit about the labor market shortage, housing challenges. Uh, Take a moment to listen to his comments. We're in a bit of a crunch right now. On the one hand, as we've all heard, uh, Minister Fraser announced that, you know, the one million labor market shortage, and that's, you know, very evident here in British Columbia. So on the one hand, you've got a labor market shortage. On the other hand, you know, we've got challenges around the housing stock. 
So how do we bring in skilled and unskilled labor market immigrants to help us build up our infrastructure in a climate of, you know, housing affordability challenges? So it is a in some ways, a perfect storm. Um, and it's going to mean we're going to have to look at new models and approaches. That was uh, Chris Friesen, the Chief Operating Officer for the Immigrant Services Society of BC, yesterday commenting on the half million uh, immigrant number that uh, we've been talking about. We were also joined by Andy Yan, who's the ur- who was an urban planner and an agent professor at Simon Fraser University. We talked about how we settle and house these immigrants as well and asked him to grade the federal government in regards to their housing um, uh, proposals along with them wanting uh, many more new immigrants to come to Canada. Take a listen. If you feel comfortable grading this country, how would you grade us? Probably around a C, C plus, <laughs> looking at the latest census on a nationwide basis. Um, you actually find from recent immigrants, that is immigrants who came in the last five years, um, 14% of that population is in core housing need. And to give you a comparison of that 14% of new immigrants being in core housing need, you find out that 7% of non-immigrants are in core housing needs. So you can see the struggle for new immigrants in this country when it comes to the issue of housing. Well, joining me now to talk about the need for more immigrants, and specifically here in British Columbia, but also the challenges of settlement and housing as well, is Nathan Cullen, the Minister of Municipal Affairs. Uh, Minister Cullen, thank you for joining us. Of course, Jess. Thanks for having me. It's it's a tough uh, it's a tough issue, and we know that where the needs are and what the needs are. Let's talk a little bit about uh, the provincial nomination nominee program, just for a second. The nomination program uh, in regards to the five hundred thousand. Will you be able to a uh, ask for specific immigrants with specific skills uh, under the, the the sort of the broad announcement from Ottawa? We're certainly hoping so. Our, our as you mentioned, the provincial nominee program has been around for a little bit incredibly successful. This is a, a way of bringing uh, people through to their ability to become Canadians with an offer of a job in hand. Uh, as you mentioned, our labour market is in- incredibly robust right now, very tight, and we have a lot of opportunities to fill many, many positions, as we've done in healthcare and high tech, um, but right across the board, from pouring coffee to designing buildings and building those buildings, we have needs in every corner of the province. We know that the uh, PMP program works. It is also uh, cost neutral to taxpayers here in BC. It pays for itself, which is not bad as far as government programs go. And we uh, met with the feds just in this past summer and were able to kind of rally up the provinces uh, to speak with one voice and saying, we need more of this. This is a program that really works. Let's not have Ottawa trying to control everything. Let's let's re- release a little bit of that control because the provinces and BC in particular does this really well. The, the the larger question, Chris and others in your intro were playing about where do we put everybody? We have a housing crisis here in BC, and bringing a hundred thousand new people in as we did last year, probably again this year, puts even more pressure on a constrained housing market, which is part of the reason why we're putting so many billions of dollars into our housing strategy as a province because the need is there for people who are in BC now, but also for the people that we know we need to bring to British Columbia 
this year, next year, and for the next decade at least. Now, generally, when immigrants come to this country, it's always the three main cities, Toronto, Montreal, Vancouver. Obviously, Calgary and Edmonton are growing. We are seeing a newer trend where people are moving to smaller communities. Uh, mm-hmm. But is there anything the provincial government can do to encourage that? Uh, you know, it, I, I can understand the, the, the lure of Vancouver, obviously, but there's so many, uh, you know, great advantages to living outside of Vancouver as well. Is there anything the provincial government can do in regards to just encouraging more of that so there is perhaps more space and we're not all fighting for the same space uh, in in large communities like uh, like vancouver well i'm i'm calling you from uh, the booming metropolis of smithers pc today where i live and what we've seen in a lot of our small towns partly due to much better connectivity uh partly due to what happened in the pandemic we're not just newcomers but people from the city and the suburbs found that living out of the city and suburbs was not such a bad deal especially get a decent price for your house and you can do pretty good in moving to some smaller towns and the quality of life is very high and the traffic's a little less um shopping maybe not so much but that's okay <laughs> we're, do, we're, do, we're doing our best in small town bc all that to be said that what we're seeing we have a an amazing and, and new uh, entrepreneur program for new immigrants to land in small communities and i just met with a bunch of those folks that are every corner and small town in bc and we're getting more it's been incredibly successful. We know the entrepreneurial spirit, broadly speaking, with new immigrants is very high. We're also tra- changing, as you know, Jazz, with respect to what we call foreign credential recognition. This, this generational frustration of having skills, having a trade, getting qualified into Canada, but then hitting all sorts of barriers when you land in provinces to be able to actually do your job. Uh, from healthcare to education to the trades, we're making huge strides with all of the colleges and people who register people in those skilled professions to accelerate, to be a lot more transparent, and make that process much more successful for the immigrant, but also for our communities and our employers who are saying, why can't you qualify this person? We need them in our hospital. We need them in our long-term care. We need them in the high-tech industry, and we're, we're making some improvements. It's a big big challenge though it's as you know it's a real dug-in sort of conversation yeah but do you think we're setting up our immigrants for success and what i mean by that is they're fighting for space uh, fighting for work which is always difficult no matter where you are you've talked about the issues of credentials um Mm -hmm. but it it seems like it's so much harder now to get ahead i'm an immigrant to this country i'm a son of Mm -hmm. immigrants as well i grew up Mm -hmm. in the interior uh I, i maybe i'm romanticizing it i don't know but it seems it's much more difficult now for immigrants to arrive and and just to succeed and get ahead. And maybe that's for everybody, but it just seems that it's much more difficult and we make it tougher for immigrants to get ahead and, and to move forward in life. Well, I, I too am a son of immigrants and, and can very much remember the stories of my parents, grandparents talking about what that was like. And I meet with lots of newcomers to BC and to Canada and very much understand the challenges. I would say a couple things. One is the, the credential piece that we're working on is going to be a game changer for so many people to be just recognized or get recognized more quickly for the skills that you already have, get the language proficiency or whatever it is that's missing, and, and then move on and, and settle the way you want to settle, which is doing the work that you love. Second, I'd say the, the research actually shows integration is improving. And, and part of that is being able to remain somewhat connected to your home country, which when my grandparents and parents immigrated, that kind of wasn't a reality. It was very expensive phone calls that never happened. People were able to connect and also move back and forth a little easier after they've immigrated, which is a positive 
for people settling. Is, are we done? Not at all. I mean, there's so much work to do. There's a lot of barriers. There's elements of racism and protectionism within any society, any economy. Um, but we're very dedicated. This, the need is so high. Jazz, how many employers do you talk to on your show, but just in, in passing, that just say, I could fill 10 people tomorrow into mm-hmm. work. I could do 20 people. Like, we need this work. Our economy needs it. And certainly our province has always been made richer every time we've gone through successive waves of increased immigration. We just got to do it right and support people in a good way. Minister, thanks for your time today. Appreciate it. Hey, anytime. Always, always happy to chat. Now, if you've been listening to this show for a while, you know I have not been a fan of the way Doug McCallum has run the city of Surrey. I don't think I'm in the minority there, and I certainly don't expect any Christmas cards from him this year. But that's okay. I'm doing my job, and he's doing his job or to his best ability. Now, as you're all aware, Mr. McCallum is presently spending his time uh, in a courtroom where he is charged with one count of public mischief regarding comments he made about a Surrey resident driving over his foot. That issue is before the court, and that's where it will be decided. But I was thinking the other day, the vitriol public officials now face. I mean, whether you like the man or not, he did have a deal. He does not have to deal. He did not have to deal with verbal abuse in that Save on Foods parking lot. When did that become acceptable? Now, take a listen to a report filed two days ago by CKNW's Emily Lazatin. Now, you tell me whether this was an isolated incident or not. Debbie Johnstone is the Crown's first witness. McCallum told police she pulled up in a car and, quote, just about pinned him, and she pulled away, purposely turned towards him, and ran over his foot. Johnstone testified there was a heated exchange between the two. She called him, quote, a scaly-faced mother effer, told him F-U a few times. And when asked if she ever called McCallum a S-head, Johnson answered, oh, probably. Crown will continue to question Johnston after lunch break. Emily Lazatin, Global News. Now, you could say this is an isolated incident, and whether or not you like elected officials' policy, whether you invo- uh, voted for them, when did verbal abuse in a public setting become acceptable? It shouldn't be. Now, in Ottawa, MPs are being given panic buttons to increase their personal security in response to threats and rising concerns about harassment of parliamentarians. The security assessment follows a number of threats to MPs uh, and incidents in the past year. At a campaign event during the last election, a handful of gravel was thrown at Liberal leader Justin Trudeau outside a political rally. Uh, Or for that matter, there were comments and threats directed at former Prime Minister Stephen Harper. Let's also not uh, forget about the man uh, in Alberta who was yelling at Deputy Prime Minister Christia Freeland as she was getting into uh, an elevator. That made national news. Let's also not forget the verbal harassment of NDP leader Jagmeet Singh during an Ontario election campaign visit earlier this year or the fact that environmental protesters showed up at the home of Premier John Horgan. It's all harassment and it goes on and on. This isn't a right-wing issue or a left-wing issue. Death threats, panic buttons, home security, emergency escape routes. Elected officials now are increasingly concerned about physical risk. The toxic political climate that is poised to move online threats to real life is pushing many to never seek public office. Just look at the recent attack on Nancy Pelosi's husband. The man accused of a hammer attack on her husband told police he was on a suicide mission, according to court documents. Civil discourse isn't just about polite conversation. It's a vital ingredient to better public policy and public leadership. So how do we, how, how did we get here? And more importantly, how do we fix it? Joining me now to discuss the issue is former Premier of BC, Christy Clark. Christy, thank you for joining us today. Always nice to be back. Thank you, Jazz. 
Um, you know, as I was uh, listening to some of the testimony in the Doug McCallum trial, and and uh, we heard about some of the heated exchanges uh, outside this grocery store in South Surrey, it kind of reminded me of other incidents. I think of uh, protesters outside uh, Premier John Horgan's house, uh, uh, the vitriol that Prime Minister Just- Justin Trudeau um, gets, uh, what the, the vitriol the former Prime Minister Just- uh, Prime Minister Harper used to get as well. What are your thoughts on this? I mean, have we reached a, a, a new level of um, just really poor discourse in society now that uh, even a, a mayor, whether you like his politics or not, uh, is getting profanity thrown in his direction? Yeah, I think there are two issues there, Jazz. I think one is, and they're related, one is the level of discourse that we're at. I mean, I do think that we are at the worst level of public discourse I've ever seen in my lifetime. And what, you know, the problem is, is that there is so little room for empathy and understanding of a, of another person's position. You know, it's kind of like we all tend to just say, no, you're wrong, no, you're wrong, when we really, if we want to have a healthy debate, need to be trying to put ourselves in the other person's shoes and think about, okay, are, you know, see them as a human being who has different views from you. And I always, you know, when I, when I was doing your job, Jazz, I mm-hmm. always thought about that a lot, you know, that I really wanted people to understand what the person was thinking, even if I disagreed with them. And I know you do the same thing. But I think that that's something that's kind of lost in public discourse at the moment. I think the other issue, though, is attacking politicians verbally. That has been around, I would say, I mean... I, my recollection of it is it really started in earnest after Gordon Campbell in 2001 started um, changing the union contracts and the years of, you know, of benefits that had been built in by the NDP that he wanted to take out. That was to me when this started, at least in British Columbia. Uh, is, so it was almost, it was pre-social media, actually. It actually, yeah, you know, it was, and it was what, I mean, it, for us in British Columbia and I, you know, this is all across the political spectrum, so I'm not picking on anybody here, but in British Columbia, it really started with the teachers' union and the hospital employees' union very upset about the changes that were being made. And, I mean, I was the education minister at the time, so I was front and center in this myself. Mm-hmm. Um, and, that you know, they use, what they were using was their very well-developed communications network internally to motivate people, and it was angry. And I remember... Um, Gordon uh, Campbell one time was, you know, he he was verbally attacked and threatened, I think, on a plane and the police got involved and everybody was really shocked about that. No one is shocked about that kind of behavior anymore. I don't think it's just become all too common. But then, as you say, social media has really changed everything. So it's not just these internal networks for, say, a union or an environmental group. And what we're also seeing now is it's not just the left. Um, it's also, in, you know, in British Columbia and in Canada, it's also the right, the far right, the conspiracy theorists that are fired up. And I think that that kind of started, got going with the kind of the nexus of social media and President Obama's election in the United States. Hmm. Uh, now, now, some would argue, look, uh, people may, would not have agreed with some of the things that Gordon Campbell wanted to implement. And, and there's always, you know, environment and, and there should be openness to um, discourse and people pushing back on any political leader if you don't like their policies. 
Um, but it, it is quite shocking when I think of Mr. McCallum, who I have I I had many have had many questions about the way he's run his administration. I'm just wondering the cumulative effect of what you've just described to me. Um, also speaks to the fact that I think we're having difficulty attracting quality people to public life just because of what every just to, just be based on what you've told me. No doubt about that, Jazz. No doubt about it. I mean, what the only people that will get into politics now, really, are political insiders, like people who know it, who have grown up in it. So Justin Trudeau, for example, mm-hmm. kind of you know he grew up in it, inherited it uh, from his dad. Um, you've and then backroom political people who've been around a long time, sometimes journalists, because journalists are, are kind of used to the cut and thrust. Mm-hmm. But, you know, you're not finding average, and, you know, and union leaders, say, for example, or people that have experience in that. But, you know, you're just not finding normal people, regular average Joes getting into politics anymore. And I, you're absolutely right. A big part of it, and I hear this especially from women, is just the... They're just do not want to be attacked. They don't want to be disparaged. They don't want their reputations in tatters when they're done. And they're like, you know, I can do some good things outside of being in politics. So thank you very much. I'm not interested. And that's a real shame because we're missing so many good people who should be doing this job. Christy, how do we collectively turn things around? You know, Jazz, I don't think asking politicians to start behaving better in question period is any kind of an answer, you know? I mean, I just don't think, like, that's been what's going on for, you know, since the beginning of parliaments. They've been badly behaved and yelling at each other. Something else has changed, though. And I do think we need, the media need to play a positive role in this. And I think as individuals, we need to really be, um, I think we need to have a very strong um, public conversation about empathy and our ability to listen to one another. And my example that I always use from this is, as you know, I am a very committed pro-choice person as a feminist. But I sat in my caucus and my cabinet with a lot of people who were just as, just as um, strongly pro-life. I found a way, I was so surprised about it too, to love them, to care about them, to sit with them and talk with them about these really difficult issues because I saw them as human beings and I, and I understood where their views came from. I didn't agree with their views, but I thought, but I knew that they were good people. And I think we have to really work hard as individuals on a one-on-one level to start talking to each other we disagree with and doing it purposefully and doing it in a way where we recognize that they are good people, even if we disagree with them. And, you know, Changing question period, that's not the answer. Mm-hmm. It's actually changing individuals. And I think the media, the you know, like your show, like people at CKNW and the newspaper, people can really make it a difference in changing that tone and, ta- and encouraging this dialogue around how we relate to one another. Uh, but, uh, I mean, I, I, the media always gets some things, uh, you know, they get accused of a lot. And that I understand. But so much of it to me is, I think, beyond that. I'm, look, I'm still accountable to uh, editorial teams here. I'm still accountable based on CRTC rules. I'm still accountable due to defamation laws that uh, are on the books. Uh, social media uh, very rarely is accountable to any of that. And I think maybe that has been probably 
driving more of the vitriol than ever before. Now, look, people have more distribution channels. They, don't really, they can go around what is described as mainstream media. Uh, but I think a lot of that uh, is driving this as well, that you, you're not at, you don't have to be accountable. You can have one partisan view and keep driving that view and repeating that view. And that, in some ways, uh, has led to a lot of folks just saying, you know what, I'm going to not run for a public office, as you said. I don't want to put up with this. You're right. No, you're you're totally you're absolutely right. I mean, it's the social media element that's transformed this really dramatically. The reason I suggest to mainstream media is precisely precisely because of the things that you've talked about, which is um, mainstream media has an ability that we haven't been we haven't really seen social media. Um, you know, in, social media doesn't have the ability, I don't think, because it's almost ungoverned. Social, you know, the responsible governed media actually does have an ability to do some of this, mm-hmm. but you're right. Social media isn't something we're going to get our hands around really quickly, but I do think that there is a growing appetite amongst people, and I meet them all the time, for reasonable, thoughtful, empathetic discussions because people are really, I think, like you and I, very concerned about where this is going. And um, I, 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 I think that news sources, social media channels, that allow people to see both sides of things where the debaters are both human beings and respected. Um, I think the appetite for that is actually really growing. And I think we'll see more channels like that open up um, where, and I think they'll become more and more popular over time. But in the short term, jazz, um, we're in a very, very tough spot and we should be very, very thankful that in Canada, we don't have the proliferation of gun culture that they do in the United States because People are angry here too, but no people don't act out the way that they do in the U.S. Mm-hmm. Um, it's bad here. It's frightening for a lot of people who might otherwise go into politics, and that's a great loss for us. But um, we still we still have some advantages over our neighbors to the south, and we should be very very thankful for that. Christy, thank you for your time today. Really appreciate it. Yeah, always nice to talk to you, Jeff. Thank you. Well, about 40 minutes ago, the cruise ship, the Crown Princess, left Vancouver Harbour and is making its way to Victoria, where it'll dock uh, till tomorrow. It'll eventually make its way back to Los Angeles from there. Now, the departure of the Crown Princess marks the end of the 2022 cruise ship season here in Vancouver. The Port of Vancouver welcomed, uh, we are told, a record 306 cruise ship visits in 2022, an increase of 6%. Uh, from uh, 2019, which is pre-COVID. Now, good news for sure, but there are challenges before the industry as well. Joining me now is Barry Penner, legal counsel for the Cruise Line International Association. Barry, thank you for joining us. You're welcome. It's good to be here. So your sense of uh, our synopsis, I guess, of the year, uh, the overall numbers, uh, when you look at them, a 6% increase in regards to cruise ships and uh, from 2022 compared to 2019 pre-COVID, 306 cruise ships visiting. The numbers on surface look good. Is 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 the industry doing as well as the numbers say? Well, it's certainly a lot better than it was the last two years when, of course, we had no ships in Vancouver or British Columbia or all of Canada, for that matter. Mm-hmm. Uh, and why that's important is until the pandemic hit, uh, cruise was contributing over $4 billion to the Canadian economy and supporting 30,000 jobs across the country with 17,000 of those jobs right here in British Columbia. So when the cruise ship industry came to a grinding halt and then Canada wouldn't let it restart last year, 
uh, that meant those 17,000 jobs were gone in British Columbia. So we had a big order in front of us to get uh, get things reorganized, get supply chains uh, sorted out, including employees, importantly, to staff up the ships. Uh, and to go from a standing start to having 306 ships uh, enter the port of Vancouver and leave again uh, was a tall order, but uh, I'm pleased to see that we were able to do that. Mm-hmm. Now, while the number of ships was a record number, though it's still important to note the total number of passengers was still down by about 300,000 passengers decrease from 2019. So a lot better than nothing, but it's still a ways to go to recover to 2019. You're confident you can make those numbers up uh, in regards to the um, 815,000 passengers? Uh, I think they're 1.1 in 2019. How long do you think it'll take before those numbers can be made up? Or is it a case of a one year or it could be longer? Well, I, I'm sure the hope uh, from our industry uh, members, there's different cruise lines, of course, uh, they're all hoping for the best for next year. Uh, but I suspect that it may still be a, a bit of a reach to get back completely to 2019. But then again, with more stops than in 2019, it might be achievable. Overall, we're seeing a, a gradual return to normalcy in terms of occupancy levels on the ships um, as, uh, as everyone has adjusted to the, the world that we're in. What type of competition um, is the Vancouver, um, is the city of Vancouver facing when it comes to south of the border? I think specifically of Seattle, uh, maybe even Alaska. Uh, can you give a sense of what the competition in regards to attracting these vessels is like at the moment? Uh, well, of course, we can never take our eye off the ball as a home port here in Vancouver. Um, but Vancouver has some tremendous strengths and uh, opportunities for reaching the Alaska market. But it is important to note that just over 20 years ago, there were zero regularly scheduled cruises out of Seattle to Alaska. And uh, now they've essentially caught up with Vancouver. And depending on what numbers you look at, uh, they may have actually surpassed Vancouver in terms of the number of ships or a number of passengers. It depends on, again, whose statistics you look at. But uh, anyway, they've gone from a standing start of zero to uh, being very very much competitive with Vancouver. And do you see those numbers in Seattle continuing to move uh, upward uh, and to the point where it surpasses Vancouver or it's a real threat to Vancouver? I, I suspect uh, the, Seattle, the port of Seattle, uh, Tacoma, is hoping to see continued growth. Um, and I, I suspect the industry is also looking to grow where they can and where they're welcome. Um, but exactly what uh, the future forecasts are for that port, I, I can't say. Um, what are the other concerns in regards to whether it be taxation, government, um, international concerns, regards to boundaries or anything like that? What are the challenges before the industry for its expansion continuing, continuing here in, in, in Vancouver and British Columbia? There's a whole range of things. You've touched on, on a number of them that all go into considerations about where to deploy the ships. Ships are mobile and uh, their job is to carry passengers to where they're welcome. So the ships do get redeployed from time to time to different markets uh, in response. For example, cruising started in the United States in 2021. It it resumed after the pandemic, but they weren't allowed to come to Canada. So those ships deployed elsewhere. Uh, This year, uh, many of them returned to Vancouver, uh, but many factors go into it beyond just being allowed to enter the waters. There's taxation, as you mentioned, there's airlift capacity and the price of flying people in and out of Vancouver versus Seattle. Um, it's often said that uh, 
for American passengers, it's easier to fly to Seattle than to get into Vancouver. There's just simply more flights that are available. Uh, and those flights are more competitive going into Seattle, and therefore, most of the time, those prices are lower for the airfare. Uh, passengers tend to look at the overall cost of their vacation, not just one component. So we have to keep our eye on that that issue about airlift capacity into Vancouver and our comparative costs. Um, when I look at the cruise ships coming into downtown Vancouver, uh, when they empty out and all folks are out spending money, speaks to the impact the industry has uh, on our economy. Uh, let's just say this continued growth occurs. Has there been any talk of... Uh, other berths in and around the Lower Mainland that may have to be built to to accommodate all of this? Certainly what we've seen overall is a trend to larger ships, and there are now a certain class of ships or category of cruise ships that are not able to uh, easily get under Lionsgate Bridge. Uh, So those ships uh, often get home ported in Seattle simply because uh, it's more challenging to home port them in Vancouver. Uh, I know the Port of Vancouver has been doing some analysis and studies to look at potential alternatives to a, a cruise port perhaps outside of the downtown harbour uh, in order to avoid the necessity of going underneath Lionsgate Bridge, which has a, a height restriction. And, and there's no specific location at this point yet that, they've, uh, focused, that, that they're focusing on? I know that they've looked at a couple of different options. Um, and just which one exactly they're zeroing in on, I'll leave that to the Port of Vancouver to discuss. But I know that their communications to us throughout the pandemic was that they, although obviously the pandemic took some of the pressure off short term, that they are still actively considering where to place a new terminal. Hmm. Well, it has been a pretty good year if you look at the overall vessels coming into to, um, uh, to Vancouver, 306 uh, cruise ship visits in 2022 an increase of 6%, but as you say, uh, still not the same amount of passengers compared to 2019, which was a 1.1 million and just over 800,000 now. Uh, but it's still um, great to see a recovery that is quite significant, and, and hopefully those numbers continue to go in the direction that we all want to, which is up and up, uh, which helps our industry and our economy as well. Barry, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. You're very welcome, Jazz. Anytime. Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on Apple or Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can always listen to the Jazz Joe Hall Show live Monday to Friday from 3 to 6 p.m. on 980 CKNW and connect with me on Twitter at Jazz Joe Hall BC. Talk to you next time.